Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. God, thank you for your power, for your might. Thank you that you are holy, holy. We give you all the glory. Lord God, you are king over everything. You are sovereign. We submit to you. We trust in you. We trust that your plan is perfect. Lord, I pray that you would be the one teaching us this evening, that we would learn about you, that we would grow nearer to you. I pray that you fill us with your spirit. I pray that you guide my words and that we would be edified and we would, that we would be encouraged about your glory, about your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Um, It is interesting that Jordan was mentioning uh, at the introduction, you know, just the collapse of the banks and, you know, you just have to look around to see, like, how the world is in so much conflict, right? I think uh, the psalmist in in Psalm 2 captures that in, in a verse or two where he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then this is God's response. He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And, and, you know, the psalm goes on. But basically, the point that I'm trying to communicate is, I believe that the issue, the, the, the biggest problem that our world has today is a power problem. And this power problem means that humanity we have not submitted to the power of God. Humanity has not submitted to the kingship of God, right? God is sovereign, God is king, God is ruler over everything. But the problem with this world is that we have rebelled against his power, against his kingship. Now, if you read my email this week, uh, the theme that we're going to be talking about today Uh, our our next uh, theological conviction is inaugurated eschatology. Now, I know that that sounds uh, interesting. Like, what what exactly do you mean by that? What is eschatology? Before we get into that, um, I want, well, actually, I, I want to define eschatology really briefly and tell you how it relates to this idea of power, this idea of kingship. So eschatology, in the most simple uh, terms, is the study of the last things, 
right? So just like in biology, you have the study of living organisms, or in theology, you have the study of God. With eschatology, you have the study of the last things. And so what are the last things? Where traditionally, or at least in a lot of people's minds, um, the last things refer to the future, right? The second coming, uh, what happens after death, right? The afterlife, uh, the, the final judgment, the destruction of evil, the, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, right? When you think about eschatology, a lot of people's minds go immediately to the book of Revelation, right? Where, where we can find a lot of what's going to happen at the end. However, when we add the word inaugurated, when we say that eschatology is inaugurated, we mean that eschatology has already begun, right? A lot of times, one term that we use is the end times. And it is interesting to find that the authors of the New Testament, which, you know, they wrote these things uh, uh, several years in the past, oftentimes they say that we already are in the last days. And so basically what this means is that eschatology is not only uh, reserved for the study of what's going to happen in the future, but eschatology is actually the hope of what has already begun to happen. Uh, and we will talk a little bit more about this, but I want to, I want to talk about briefly about why eschatology matters. I think it matters because when we study eschatology, we know the direction that human history is going, and we can have hope, and we can have assurance, we can have boldness, right? Because we know that Jesus will triumph in the end, because we know that God is king over everything, because we know that God will judge his enemies and redeem and save his people, we can have hope and assurance, right? We can look at these banks that are collapsing. We can look at all the elites and powerful people in the world that are ruling. We can look at, at you know, the, the power struggle that goes on in our world. We can look at the evil that is around us, and we can have hope and assurance that God is in perfect control and that he will judge his enemies and that he will save his people. This means that we can have an optimistic outlook of history, right? This means that we don't have to fear death. This means that we don't have to fear persecution. This means that we don't have to fear um, really anything other than God, right? God is the only one to fear. But also the, the amazing news is that Jesus has brought hope and forgiveness for us. And therefore, if we are in Christ, we don't have to fear the future. So, we cannot talk about eschatology without talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, teaching a class in... in uh, Back in my college, like I was invited back to, back to go teach a class. I don't even remember what the class was about, but I remember that I, I was using the term 
you know, the kingdom of God. I was using it often. Now, my, the Bible college that I went to comes from a particular tradition where they, let's just say they view the kingdom of God a little bit differently from what I, from what I do. And so I remember that someone at the end, you know, when I opened up the, the conversation for, for questions, someone said, hey, you've been mentioning the term the kingdom of God quite a bit. What do you mean by that? And so, you know... <laughs> Sorry, this is the lamest story because honestly, at the time, I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what my response was. What I do remember is kind of leaving thinking and saying, well, you know, I don't know why I gave the response that I gave. I think the response I should have, I should have given was, well, that's all Jesus preached about. Like, I'm not using anything new. I'm not even using a theological term. I'm simply using the words that Jesus and his disciples were using. Right? Jesus, from the, from the very beginning of his ministry, he came to proclaim the news of the kingdom of God. And so we cannot talk about eschatology. We cannot talk about the last things or the study of the last things without talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, the, the, uh, the main point of, of today's message and really the main point of our you know, theological conviction as a church is this, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated at the first advent or coming of Jesus. That is when, he, when Jesus came and, and, you know, he became flesh, he was born uh, of the Virgin Mary. And it will be consummated at the second advent of Christ or the second coming. So let me read that again. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated at the first advent of Jesus, and it will be consummated at the second advent of Christ. So, what is the kingdom of God, right? I think that that is the, that's, for me, that's kind of the main question that I want to, to uh, address right now. And so, to help us think about what the kingdom of God is, I want to give you four words. And one thing I've learned when I moved to this country is that Americans really like alliteration. And so they all start with P. Uh, the four words are power, people, presence, and place. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we can use these four words, power, people, presence, and place. And, this, and, and so this is kind of the summary of what the kingdom of God would be or a definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is when God exercises his power as king over his people who enjoy his presence in the place that he gave them. I'm going to read that again. The kingdom of God is when God exercises his power as king over his people who enjoy his presence in the place that he gave them. When we think about the book of Genesis, right? When we think about when God created Adam and Eve, we see that these four things were perfectly there, right? We see that when God created Adam and Eve, he was king over them and, and they were under his rule, under his power. Adam and Eve, of course, were his people, right? They belonged to God. Um, they enjoyed the presence of God. When they were in the Garden of Eden, they were in 
the presence of God. They would walk with God. They would be right there with him. And they were in the place that God created for them. It says right there in Genesis that God created a garden for them to be there. So they were under the power of God. They were the people of God. They enjoyed the presence of God. And they were in the place that God gave them. But of course, we know in the story that at the fall, they rebelled against God's power. And therefore, they were taken away from his presence, right? They rebelled against the power of God. And because of their sin, they could no longer be God's people. They could no longer be in his presence. And they could no longer be in the place that he had, crea that he had created for them. And so they were expelled from the garden. And so technically, we could say that eschatology begins right there. Technically, we could say that eschatology begins in Genesis 3 because all of a sudden, the power of God, people are no longer under the power of God. The people are no longer the people of God. They're not in the place that God made for them and they're not in the presence of God. And from that moment on, we look forward to being in a place where we can be under the power of God, where we can be in the presence of God, where we can be the people of God, and where we can be in the place that he has created. Now, so, sorry, in case that you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm kind of taking you through the story of the Bible. This is very general, uh, but I think this is going to help us understand the idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned against God, a plan was set into motion to bring back God's people under his kingship, under his rule. Um, now, this plan, it was something that was established before the foundation of the world. This is something that God had already planned. Now, we see in the first half of the book of Genesis, and, and pardon me for an, an oversimplification of the first section of the book of Genesis, but basically what we see is that man is not capable of restoring their relationship with God. Something radical has to happen for man to be able to restore the relationship with God, right? We see in Genesis that man just continues to become more and more evil. We see in Genesis that God limits the number of the days of, of people because he doesn't want to, you know, contend with them. Uh, we see that even if God were to wipe out all of humanity and save only one righteous man and his family, that is just not enough. Humanity continues to rebel against the power of God. And so we learn that it takes for God to take the initiative and rescue a people for himself. And so that is exactly what he does uh, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when he calls Abraham. Right? He calls Abraham, he calls him out of the place that Abraham was, and he calls him to a new place. He calls Abraham to abandon his family, to abandon his gods, and to come and worship him. To come and submit under his power, and he promises that he will become a great nation. He promises that he will have many descendants, right? He promises that he will become a people who are under the power of God and who are experiencing the presence of God and who will enter the place that God has prepared for them. So fast forward a few years after this promise that God made to Abraham, after this covenant that God made with Abraham, the people of Israel, 
right? The descendants of Abraham are now, you know, more numerous. They have become a people. And God delivers them from Egypt. And he promises that he will bring them to this place that he calls the, that, that we know as the promised land, right? He brings them out of Egypt. He rescues them. He is their God. They are supposed to serve him, to be under his power, under his authority. Um, and even before they get to the promised land, God makes provisions for them to be able to be, or for them to be able to have God, God's presence among them, right? He gives them the law. And so they, you know, they have this extremely complicated sacrificial system where they have to, you know, sacrifice lambs and animals and everything so that they are able to experience God's presence among them as they eagerly wait to go to the promised land, right? To the place that God has created. Now, even after they entered the promised land, the people of God continue to rebel against his power. The people of God continue to rebel against the rule of God. And eventually, and this is a very short summary of the whole story of the Old Testament, eventually they end up losing once again the place that God had given them. Eventually they end up being exiled. They are taken captives into Babylon and other, other places in the world. Uh, they lose the place that God had promised them. We read in the prophet Ezekiel that the presence of God actually leaves the temple. The glory of God leaves the temple. They spend several years in captivity in Babylon. In Babylon. And even after that, uh, even after they return to the land, they rebuild the temple, they, they come back to the land, but everyone realizes this is just not quite the same. The temple is not as, as great and, and even though we are back in our land, we are still under the power of other rulers, other kings, other nations. And so, as you would expect, by the time Jesus is born, by the time Jesus begins his ministry, the people of Israel are very, very expectant of the kingdom of God to arrive. The people of Israel are really, really expecting, expectant of God to send a mighty warrior to come and destroy their enemies so that they could be back under his authority, under his power. The people of Israel are very expectant that this warrior, that God, through this warrior, will give them their land back. Right? The place that God promised to them, the promised land. And they're also expectant that, you know, they're, they're going to have, they're, they're going to continue to be the people of God. So Jesus comes and this is how he begins his ministry, right? We read in Mark 1.15 that Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the first uh, uh, recorded words of, of Jesus's ministry. Right? These are the first words that he said when he started his ministry. We also read in Matthew 4.17 that from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you can understand why when Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, people were so excited. Right? They had this, this 
huge expectation of God finally being restored to them. And then Jesus comes, and he comes performing miracles, and he comes preaching about the kingdom of God. And so, of course, they are extremely excited, right? That's why uh, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, people are so extremely excited. They want to make him king. Finally, this is the one that is going to come and defeat the Roman Empire, defeat our enemies, and he is going to bring the kingdom of God, finally. Well, obviously, things didn't go according to their plans, and things got so badly that the one that they were, you know, hoping would bring the kingdom is the one they end up crucifying because of, you know, just how how disappointed they were that it was not, from their perspective, it was not him who was going to bring the kingdom. So, you know, that's kind of a brief summary of, of the story of the Bible. And remember the, the four key concepts, right? The kingdom of God is the power, power of God, the people of God under God's power, in the, or experiencing the presence of God, and being in the place that God created for them. So the question is, when, so when will the kingdom of God begin? Well, as we have been, uh, as, as I've been arguing, or as I said uh, at the beginning of this message, the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. The kingdom of God began at the first coming or the first advent of Jesus. His ministry, his gospel, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit is what marks the beginning of the kingdom of God. Even though the the people of Israel had a very clear expectation of what the kingdom was supposed to be, God was presenting to them a fuller picture of what the kingdom of God meant, right? Whereas the people of God, sorry, whereas the people of Israel were hoping that the place that God gave them was, you know, the particular land of Israel, Jesus was saying, no, actually, it's something else. It's something better. It's something greater than this. Whereas the people of Israel were thinking, we are the people of God, Jesus was saying, no, it's actually even bigger than just the people, the, you know, the, the people of Israel. Actually, peoples from all tribes and nations will come to this kingdom, to this feast. People from all nations will be included in this kingdom. And of course, you know, when we talk about uh, the presence of God, what we read in Revelation is that the kind of presence of God that Jesus was talking about was actually being in the uninterrupted presence of God for eternity. Right there where God himself is with us, where there's no need for a temple, right? The people of Israel, they wanted to have a temple. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the temple. And in the new heaven, in the new Jerusalem, there will not even be a need for a temple because God will be right there with us because the presence of God will be right there with us. So, you know, again, there was, there was confusion. People were expecting something. Jesus was saying 
something better. Jesus was offering something better. Uh, at the same time, you know, we can't deny that the idea of the kingdom of God was confusing to them. Here's a few passages where Jesus talks about the kingdom. Uh, if you can turn with me to Matthew 12, verses 22 through 30. Here, Jesus gives them a, a hint, or even more than a hint, that the kingdom of God is amongst them, that the kingdom of God has begun ministry. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was, built, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Right, so people are amazed. People are wondering if Jesus is the one who is going to come and rule and reign, who is the one who's bringing the kingdom of God. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And then listen to this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, did you catch what Jesus is telling them, right? They are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus tells them, that would be impossible. Like, how can Satan be working against Satan, right? The, a kingdom cannot stand divided against himself. Satan's kingdom cannot be divided against itself. And he says, if, if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, who did Jesus cast demons through? It was through the Spirit of God, right? The miracles that Jesus performed were through the Spirit of God. And so he's saying, because I am casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is, is among you. When Jesus came, he... He... Uh, uh, he had a decisive victory over Satan. When Jesus came, he basically begun the fall of Satan's dominion, right? That's, why, that's the reason why he was able to cast demons. It's not because he was doing it by the power of Satan. Of course not, right? That is blasphemy. In fact, that's exactly what it says later, right? Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, will, you know, it will not be forgiven to them. He is saying, because I am here and because I am doing these things, this means that the kingdom of God has begun. It's similar to what happened with John the Baptist, right? John is in, in prison and he's confused. He's like, well, you know, I thought Jesus was the one who was supposed to bring the kingdom. 
but I'm in, I'm in prison. I don't know if he knew that he was going to be beheaded or not, but, you know, he knows that things don't look great to, for him. And so he asks him, are you the one or should we wait for someone else? And what does Jesus point to? He points to all the miracles that he is performing. He points to all the healings. He points to how the, the, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. He is showing him, look, the kingdom of God is happening in front of your eyes. I am bringing the kingdom of God. The problem is that this kingdom is not like the people were expecting, right? The, the people were expecting this climactic kingdom with a mighty warrior that would come and conquer their enemies. But this is what Jesus says about the kingdom in Matthew 13, 31. He says, well, he, it, Matthew writes, he put another parable before them saying, and these are the words of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Then he told them another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it has all leavened. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God begins as something really tiny, right? Like a mustard seed. It begins really small. When Jesus came, that was the very small beginning of the kingdom of God. But he says, this kingdom is going to grow enormously, right? This kingdom is going to grow from this tiny little thing to this ginormous kingdom, right? I'm, I'm reminded of um, how God revealed to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? When, when he sees this dream where there is this statue made out of different materials and you know, Daniel reveals to him how each, you know, each one of the materials of the statue is a different kingdom. And then there comes a, a small stone that breaks the statue. And it says that this stone becomes a great mountain. Well, what is that small stone that breaks all of these other kingdoms? Well, it's, it's Jesus, right? It's the beginning of the kingdom of God, which goes from a very small stone and it turns into a mighty, great mountain. And that is what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God begins small. And so, obviously, a lot of people at the time, they were not able to see it. He gives them another uh, parable to explain the kingdom of God in, in Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles.
to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So another thing that Jesus is saying about the kingdom is that it is mysterious in the sense that it's not immediately noticeable, right? Like in, in our world today, the, the people that belong to the kingdom and people who do not belong to the kingdom, it, it's not like, you know, they have this mark on their face or their hand or something. You can say, oh, there, there's a person of the kingdom. Oh, there's someone who's not in the kingdom. No, right? It's not noticeable. These two grow together, but then there is a time of harvest. There's a time of judgment. There's a time of separation. So the kingdom of God has already begun. The, the seeds have already been planted. The, 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 wheat, the, the wheat and the and the weeds are already growing together. And eventually at the time of the harvest, time of judgment, they will be separated. So Jesus, as he comes, as he preaches the, the good news of the kingdom, as he lives a perfect life, as he went and died on the cross, as he resurrected and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, he made it possible for people to enter the kingdom of God, right? The only way to, to enter the kingdom of God, the only way to be once again under the power of God, to experience the presence of God, to become the people of God, and to be in the place that God has uh, created for us is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. So one question that at least, you know, came to mind when I was preparing, I don't know if this is the immediate question that is coming to your mind, but one question would be, so does that mean that the church is the kingdom of God? I would say, no, the church is not, the church does not equal the kingdom of God, but at the same time, the church should not be separated of or separated from the kingdom of God. The church is, while the church is not the expression, is, sorry, while the church is not the kingdom of God, the church is an expression or an outpost of his kingdom. In what sense is the church an expression of the kingdom of God? Well, in the sense that through the, sac the sacrifice of Jesus, we are, uh, we have been made the people of God. The church is an outpost of the kingdom in the sense that we try to live under this under submission to God's power, to God's rule. Of course, we don't do that perfectly, but we have brought our lives under submission of King Jesus. It is also an outpost of the kingdom in that the presence of God is with us through his Holy Spirit, right? With the Holy Spirit, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so with the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God among us. But at the same time, it is not the kingdom of God because we are not ultimately in the place that God is preparing for us, right? We are exiles in a sense right now. We are not in the, in, in the place that God is preparing for us. And we are exiles in the sense that even though having the Holy Spirit is amazing and is incredible, we still have the expectation of being in the new heaven and the new earth where we can be just like Adam and Eve were in the uninterrupted presence of God, right? That is still 
our hope. That is still something that we look forward to. In the words of uh, Paul that he wrote to Titus, he says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord, sorry, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's, that, that's when we get into the aspect of even though the kingdom of God has already begun or has already been inaugurated, the kingdom of God has not been consummated yet, right? We don't have the, the, the ultimate or the final deal yet. We are still waiting. We are still, our blessed hope is still the appearing of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus will come a second time and he will consummate his kingdom. Now, there are uh, uh, several different views or perspectives on when God will be consummated. I, I do not want to get into them right now, mostly because I, yeah, I don't want to spend time uh, dealing with those in this particular message. But I am more than happy to talk about them later. So if you have any questions, uh, you, can, you can come and talk to me and I'm happy to talk about, you know, just the different perspectives of uh, uh, when the kingdom of God will be consummated. You know, just uh, to give you uh, some of the names, you know, there's the, the perspective of premillennialism and postmillennialism and, and uh, amillennialism and a bunch of different isms. And so if you're curious about those, if you want to talk more about those, I'm happy to talk uh, about those at a different time. For now, it's, it's sufficient to say that all believers should have the expectation that Jesus is coming a second time to establish and to consummate his kingdom. All believers have the same hope and expectation, or at least all believers should have the same hope and expectation that Jesus will appear a second time in glory, that he will judge all of his enemies, that he will rescue his people and that he will finally restore us back under the power of God as the people of God in the presence of God and in the place that God has prepared for us. So what should be our attitude now as we wait for Jesus to come in and uh, consummate his kingdom? I have just a couple of, of um, just a couple of implications for us on what our attitude should be. The first one is we need to prioritize the kingdom of God. One of the parables that Jesus gave his disciples was this in Matthew 13:44. This is a very short parable. It's just one verse. Jesus says, "The kingdom of heaven is like treasure." hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What does this teach us about the kingdom of God? That the kingdom of God is to be prioritized, right? That, that the kingdom of God is worth us selling everything we have. The kingdom of God is worth us, uh, you know, just abandoning everything else in order to prioritize the kingdom of God. Why? Because 
we understand, we recognize that right now we are in the, in the problems that we are. We are in the trouble that we are because we have not submitted to the kingship and the lordship of God. Because we recognize that being in the presence of God is better than anything else in the world. Because we recognize that being in the place that God is preparing for us is so much better than anything else. So when we, rec- when we realize how good the kingdom is, then we will prioritize it above everything else. Now, the second thing about, you know, our attitude now as we wait is we need to understand that Jesus and the kingdom of God are inseparable. As I was, you know, preparing for... for uh, for this message, I came across this quote from, from a Bible teacher named uh, Gordon Fee, and he declares something really strong. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you do not understand that term. And he says, I'm sorry to say it that strongly, But this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have a Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. So I think that is a big problem, right? We we separate. We want Jesus, but we don't necessarily want or we separate him from the kingdom, or we simply don't know anything about the kingdom, right? We know who Jesus is. We know that, you know, he came and saved us. But we need to understand that the gospel that Jesus came proclaiming was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we cannot separate Jesus from his kingdom, right? Jesus is king. He is the one who has the power of God. He is the one who has made us a people for himself through his death on the cross. He is bringing us into the presence of God. He told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, a place for us. It is only through Jesus that we can enter the kingdom of God. Paul declares in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, when he was crucified, he understood this. In Luke 23, 39, we read, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for, of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. May our attitude be that one of the the second thief. Jesus, remember me 
when you come in your kingdom? Do we really believe that the best place to be is under the power of God as the people of God with the presence of God and in the place that he has created for us? And if we do, then let's claim to, to, to Jesus. Let's, uh, let's ask him to remember us when he comes into his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, everyone who has faith and trusts in him is transferred into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, we pray that you help us come under submission of your kingship, your authority. I pray that you give us boldness, knowing that you are ruler and you will triumph in the end. That you give us boldness, knowing that your son Jesus is already seated at the right hand, at your right hand, he is ruling and all of his enemies will be placed under his feet. Lord, we thank you for the death, the sacrifice of your son. Please remember us, God, when you come into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.